Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the More Than You See podcast, hosted by me, actor, filmmaker, mental health advocate, Deborah Lee Smith. Every Monday, just like this one, I come to you to share some resources, have a conversation, and generally just dive into all sorts of topics around mental health. I am not a licensed practitioner or therapist, but just a woman exploring my own mental health journey and sharing it with you, my listeners. My hope is that this podcast and conversations bring you some joy, some understanding, and some tools so that you can build your own mental health toolbox. Welcome back, everyone, to season two, episode two of the podcast. I am really honored to share this guest with you all today. This is a very special friend of mine, Lynn Chen, who is a filmmaker and an actor, and she also has a lot of experience addressing the difficulties of eating disorders and how much eating disorders can really affect our mental and physical health, and that is definitely something that we go into today. A short little background about Lynn. Lynn has a multi-decade career with credits in over 50 television shows, Shameless, Silicon Valley, films like Saving Face, Go Back to China, audiobooks, Crazy Rich Asians, and video games, Call of Duty, Black Ops 3 and 4. Now she adds filmmaker to her resume with her directorial feature debut, I Will Make You Mine, which premiered at South by Southwest in 2020 and is streaming everywhere on VOD and DVD. Lynn is also an ambassador for the National Eating Disorders Association and Mary's List. I really don't want to give any more introduction, but just dive into this interview because I think that Lynn and I cover so many incredible talking points. And I just want you to be able to soak up all of the juicy goodness. As always, please be sure to rate, review, share, interact with this podcast in whatever way works for you. I know myself and Lynn will be so honored to hear what you think. And I'm just really excited to bring this important conversation to you all today. And without further ado, here is Lynn Chen. Lynn, thank you so much for being here. I'm so, so excited to have you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. So there's so many different things that I want to talk to you about. You have been in the entertainment industry for 20 plus years. Um, You are an actor, a writer, a producer, and most recently a director. And I definitely want to dive into that whole experience about transitioning from, you know, you're still an actor, but being an actor and then going on the other side of the camera and how you've managed your own stress and anxiety and just all of the feelings that come with that. I certainly want to get into that. But I would love to start with some different periods of your life early on in your career. Um, You had a really incredible blog that is still active, although you aren't writing as much, called The Actor's Diet. And I would love to hear, you know, what brought that on and what that was about. And uh, yeah, just tell me a little bit about that that side of yourself. Yeah, so The Actor's Diet was during... um... It was from 2009 to 2019. I, I ran it for 10 years and I thought 10 years was a good time to stop. 
So when we started, you know, there were barely phones that had cameras on them, you know, and this was before people were taking photos of their food and blogs were definitely in their infancy or, or just starting to, you know, um, gain some trackage in terms of like people coming to them daily and, and participating in a community. It was definitely before Instagram, definitely before Twitter. So I found a real community uh, in reading blogs. I, I had been suffering from an eating disorder, a binge eating disorder specifically, almost all my life, but I didn't know it was an eating disorder. When I was growing up, eating disorders were categorized into basically two you know, two things, which was anorexia and bulimia. And anything else was just sort of like you overeat or you eat emotionally. And but, can you um, um, can you just explain a little bit about your upbringing as far as, you know, your ethnicity, your your family, how it was, you know, growing yeah. up? Yeah, I grew up in New Jersey. I was born to two immigrant parents who are from Taiwan. And I, I grew up, so, so when I grew up in New Jersey, it was a mostly white, very small town outside of New York City. I was one of few, very few Asian Americans. I definitely felt like I was an other. I definitely was embarrassed by my race and my ethnicity and my culture. I definitely wanted to be white. And, you know, back then I was also performing. It was actually the thing that made me so different from everyone else. My mom was an opera singer at the Metropolitan Opera House and I sang in the children's chorus with her. So I learned at a very, very young age that I had a gift and that it was really a way for me to express myself that was special. And I felt like other people knew that about me, but also, you know, at that age, it's sort of like, you're the annoying girl who sings and performs all the time. And I was also leaving school a lot to go to rehearsals. So people were also, people already just thought I was like weird. And then when I went to high school, you know, I was definitely the lead in the school musical and, and all of that. I was, I was in band. I sang all the solos and in chorus. So I was that girl. And I was also known as being very skinny um, people used to call me Skeletor. In fact, people used to accuse me of having eating disorder when I was growing up because I was so small. And I, I would try to combat that by overeating in front of them. Well, there was also this other piece, which was that I want to be a quote unquote American. I wanted to eat American foods, which was basically at the time, like hostess cupcakes and chef Boyardee, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> I wanted to eat everything that was like in a can uh, processed and advertised to me on Saturday mornings. Right. And my parents did not want that in the house. They didn't even know, you know, what, what those things were. So the only times I got to experience those things were when I went to other people's houses or after school, when I would save up my lunch money and go and like buy a box of Entenmann's and just pound them mm-hmm. um, before I came home. And I remember I would come home, not be hungry for dinner. And my mom would be like, you better eat, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like there's no way you're not going to eat my dinner. Right. Um, so I would sit there and eat another dinner. And it started to become like this thing where it was like impressive because I could eat a lot and not gain weight. 
mm-hmm. almost like this stereotype that we still have about Asian women to a certain extent. Um, you know, some of the world's greatest uh, competitive eaters are Asian American women right. who are known for being so tiny and they can just take down all the hot dogs and, you know, <laughs> bring, bring these huge men to their knees. You right. know, it's like, it's, also at the time, you know, the only Asian American women we saw were uh, concubines, they were prostitutes, they all did martial arts, you Mm -hmm. know, they were very small women who kicked ass and didn't say much. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm sure that that had something to do with it, this idea of just basically stuffing my feelings down. Yeah, but I didn't know that it was an issue. I just thought that I really loved food. And I turned to it whenever I felt anything, joy or pain or anything. And when I went to college, I gained the inevitable freshman 15, but it was more like the freshman 30. Because mm-hmm. uh, on top of the food, I was also like drinking and doing drugs for the first time ever. Right. So that obviously made me a little less careful or just in general, I always had the munchies and yeah, inhibitions are down. <laughs> Yeah. Well, again, it was like a way to bond. I found it was an easy way to bond with people was like right. talking about food. So I, at that same time, I became a woman's studies major. I, I started studying feminist studies. And so of course I learned about eating disorders. And I remember thinking like, well, good thing I don't have one of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and I came home and, and my, and there's, it's, it's customary in Asian American, Asian families to comment on your weight as mm-hmm. if it's just, uh, it's it, like, there's no tact or any mm-hmm. <laughs> politeness about it. It's more just like, Hey, you got fat or yep. you got skinny. And so there was a lot of that going in. And I, I remember saying to people right away, like, don't do that. You're going to give me an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. So when I graduated from college and, uh, was starting to act, and was starting to see that I did not fit in size-wise with other, not only other actresses, but definitely not other Asian actresses. Right. It, it definitely felt to me like, hey, you're so pretty. You are really shooting yourself in the foot by not like losing five to 10 pounds. Right. And for me, I, I was so like anti-dieting, mm-hmm. you know, because of everything I had learned in feminist studies. That I was just like, I am not going to give into that. And, and in turn, that would make me angrier and would make me eat more. Right. So until I, around 2005 was when uh, I booked a role in a Sony Pictures Classics film called Saving Face, where I had to play a ballet dancer. And I knew this was a role that would change my life. And, um, and it did. And I also knew that it would require me to lose weight. Mm-hmm. I mean, they told me that, you know, they, yeah. they basically told me when I was auditioning, like you are our number one pick and you need to lose weight mm-hmm. because you're playing a ballet dancer. Right. And, and I started off doing it healthfully and then just quickly, it just became the obsession. It, it was like the opposite of what my binge eating was. It became the other end of the spectrum. Right. And so, you know, I basically, and, and once the movie came out and obviously I gained back, uh, I gained back the weight because I wasn't heavily starving myself or, or exercising any longer people said things mm-hmm. uh, you know fans uh people in the industry my my family everyone said things right and so it became a thing of of up and down and up and down so that's why I started the blog because when I was reading blogs it really helped me see 
what a quote unquote normal serving would be. Cause I, my body was so confused at that point. Yeah. I couldn't stop at a bowl of cereal. I had to Mm -hmm. have like the entire box of cereal Mm -hmm. and I couldn't tell the difference between true hunger or, you know, just like a gnawing of boredom. Right. So I, I would turn to these to these food blogs to see like, oh, that's what a serving of lasagna looks like. That's what a serving of cake looks like. And it became something like a, like a food diary, mm-hmm. you know, and it very quickly turned into a way for me to communicate with people that the same way that performing allowed me to do. Uh, you had immediate access to an audience via comments and a community. And I could be creative by writing daily. I could be creative by doing photographs. And very soon my, my, my relationship with food quickly changed mm-hmm. because of it. I went from basically being very fearful of food to really, really celebrating food. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, the blog was really like this, this interesting time for me because whereas acting was still like so difficult and it was just hard for me still, I was still struggling a lot all of the opportunities coming from blogging were so easy. Mm -hmm. You know, like I I suddenly had like a meeting with a producer from the Food Network. And by the end of like our meeting, he was like, let's make a show. And I was like, how is this happening? You know, it was almost like way too easy. But the story with that goes that the more I was in that world, the more I realized this is not not my passion. Mm -hmm. You know, I've I've fallen into this and yeah, it's easy and and it is fun. I mean, what's not fun about like going to a restaurant and having a chef put down all this food in front of you. And I was also really grateful for how it changed my relationship with food. But I knew that at the end of the day, I didn't want what the ultimate goal was, which was to have a cookbook, to have my own show, to sell a, you know, uh, like a bunch of pans and knives. Like that was not at all fun for me or, or even what I wanted to do. And what ended up happening was I found out I was diagnosed with celiac right about the time I stopped blogging. And it just became like a crystal clear sign from not even just the universe, just like life was just like, you got to stop. Yeah. (laughs) You can't, you can't even touch. I can't even touch flour without breaking out into hives. So it was, it was a really great thing because what has ended up happening is that my quote unquote diet mm-hmm. now is extremely limited. Um, and on the one hand, you could look at it on a day-to-day basis and be like, uh-oh, eating disorder trigger, mm-hmm. you know, right. once again, because it, there's so much limitation. But for me, it's a, an incredible amount of freedom mm-hmm. because I feel like much like with college, I had my heyday mm-hmm. with food. Like I had the best of everything in massive quantities for 10 years and I like did it up. I did not take one second for granted. I loved every minute of it, but I can't do that anymore. And so it's okay. Like when people are like, don't you miss pie? I'm like, not really. Yeah. I feel like I had like 10 years of the best pie ever. Right. So so what it's it, what basically long story short is what it's taught me is that your relationship with food is constantly changing. Mm-hmm. And my, my relationship with food has constantly changed. And the best I can do is just not to judge myself for it. Yeah. And to go along with whatever's working for me in the moment at this time. Yeah. And right now it's really working for me. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. My, um, my ex-husband is, uh, has Crohn's 
and so that, you know, similar, very, very specific foods that he can eat. And it is kind of freeing in some way because you can, you can allow yourself to be creative within some restraints instead of like a kind of being frozen with possibilities. Cause there's so many things out there for you. I, you know, I, I think what you were saying about the, the, uh, your parents and your family members, as far as, you know, commenting on weight, like, unfortunately, I think that that's, I mean, that's certainly stereotyped in Asian culture, but I think it's also very prevalent in just, um, in just immigrant cultures in general, I think more, you know, more so than American like based families or whatever. But I, I mean, I think that what you said about the way that our experience around food changes all the time is spot on. I mean, I know that myself as an actor as well, I certainly, that's something that I probably think about way too much like food. And it's just, it's, it's an ongoing thought process that I talk to my therapist about that I talk to, you know, like that I read about in a, in a healthy way, but it certainly is, you know, I've also gotten to this point because I had friends or, or family members in the past who I was, I was a ballerina as a kid. And even my ballet teacher told me that I was too fat to dance. And I was, you know, I was, uh, like normal sized, you know, quote unquote, normal sized child. Like there was nothing fat about me, but it, it's, it's so damaging because those are the things that we can, I mean, it's still something that's affecting me as a, you know, you know, 30 year old. And that's, uh, that's such a shame. And I think it's just so important for us to be careful about what we say. And also just, I think it's so wonderful that you were able to be so public about your experience, because I think, and that's, you know, one of the reasons that I've created more than you see is because I think that the more that people who are public facing can talk about their experience, the more that everyone else can feel less alone and feel like, oh, I resonate with that. Like, I, I feel exactly the same. Like, this is so wonderful that I feel the same way as you. And I think that it just like unifies us in a really wonderful way. Um, so I want to, to ask you about like, how was it for you as a, you know, public facing figure, you've just finished this film that, um, you know, you said changed your life. You like you, it really was one of the catapults in your career. So how was that for you in dealing with criticism, comments from people? Um, like what tools did you use in order to work through that? Just how was that? Yeah, when it was happening, you know, one of the, one of the first places I turned to was the National Eating Disorders Association. I remember going to their site because I knew I had a problem and I knew I needed to get specific help in this area. And I remember I went to the site and I remember seeing Jamie Lynn Siegler from The Sopranos on the site as their celebrity ambassador and thinking to myself, oh my God, I could never do that. Mm. I could never like announce to the world that I have this problem because mm. for me, like, like she was anorexic. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was like, oh my God, like, still in my head it was like that that equation of like skinny equals good so like if you're saying you're anorexic like oh she'll get too skinny but like if you're a binge eater then they'll be like oh she'll just let her her being in recovery means she's gonna let herself go right and I my fear was that publicly saying that publicly saying like I'm proud of my body no matter what would mean having to stand up to people who are like mm, 
she's actually heavier than we would like her to be, but she's okay with that. And, you know, good for her, but we're not going to hire somebody like that. Really, like I, as I say it out loud, of course, yeah. right now, I, I'm able to like see how <laughs> untrue and right. in my head that was, what a false story that was. But at the time, that's how it felt. And what ended up happening was I, I ended up seeing a therapist that I found through their site. Um, and I saw her for years. Mm-hmm. And for the first, I'd say two years, all we did was talk about food. Like mm-hmm. every second of those 60 minutes twice a week was devoted to like my analysis of, of the calorie fat content of something and how it made me feel and how I did good this week, but how I did bad that week. And I remember right. her telling me at some point, you know, one day food is not going to have this power over you. Mm. And I was like, that sounds lovely. I don't believe you. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't believe you. But she was really right. Mm-hmm. Like it was, it was not, it was not a trick. It was not um, an anecdote. It was not like a new method of thinking or a technique that my husband was going to utilize. In fact, like it, one of the biggest things that helped was my husband stopped trying to fix things mm-hmm. of him just like letting whatever was going to happen was going to happen with judge without judgment. Yeah. What I found to be the most helpful was just constantly getting knocked down after like having a relapse after having had like weeks and then months of six of quote unquote success and then like falling off the wagon and just being like, what the fuck? Mm -hmm. Having that happen continually and then not having that what the fuck feeling anymore and just being like, well, this is it'll be it'll be okay. I I got through it before and I'm going to get through it again. Yeah. The more and more that happened, the more I was able to just relax about it. And I think that's what she meant when she said food is not going to have that power over you anymore. It was just this feeling of like your eating disorder mm-hmm. is not going to have this power over you anymore. Like a lot of these, a lot of the same behaviors will still be there. And, and I mean, it's not like I don't binge on Thanksgiving. It's mm-hmm. not like I don't find joy uh, on Halloween sitting with like 40 pieces of candy and taking a <laughs> bite of each. Like right. that's, that's joyful for me. Right. But, and it always has been. And, and I'm not going to, it's not like I denied myself that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like, I know how certain foods make me feel. Uh, that's very clear to me now, especially with celiac. And it's just, it's just, it's not even, it's not even a thing anymore. I find that it's more a thing for other people. It, it, and, and that was, that was the main thing I had to deal with was like, you know, when I'm hungry, I want to eat. Mm-hmm. I want to eat right away. Mm-hmm. And if that means we're not having dinner until seven, like I might like go, I might go nuts right. <laughs> before 7 p.m. Um, so if I'm sitting at dinner with you and I'm not hungry because I've already eaten an energy bar on my way to the restaurant and I'm just going to order like a salad, I'm not going to freak out in my head over the fact that you're going to be like, oh, Lynn has an eating disorder right. or, or, oh, Lynn, like there's like, she's hiding something. Like, I don't have to worry about that because I know the truth. Right. And I'm okay with it. And I think a lot of it was like dealing with that and also educating my friends and everyone I eat with on a regular basis that that's how it is. And it's not helpful to me if you make comments like that. 
it's not it's not only like is it not helpful it's not true mm-hmm. um so that's not something that they have to worry about right. anymore with me yeah. of, of trying to be like how do I help my friend who's like fallen off the wagon there's not they don't have to worry about that because if I do quote unquote fall off the wagon I've got resources I'll right. be okay right I think that's so wonderful that you now have that perception and that understanding as far as your own your own relationship with how your body is, but also how other people are seeing your body and seeing you interact with your body. I think that that's so important and so important, just like in the mental health space in general, like something that I talk about all the time is the importance of advocating for yourself and the importance of advocating for your mental and physical health. Like, yes, of course we have these resources in order to help us, but no one is going to like, no one can help you if you, if you aren't going to be able to take the advocacy and like help yourself first. And I think it's so, you know, valuable that you have, you know, reached this point in your life. And I'm wondering if you have, if you've struggled with any other, you know, like if this had a, like increased your anxiety or if there was any other, you know, psychological impacts of your eating disorder, just, you know, on how you were feeling about yourself on a, on a day-to-day basis. I mean, I definitely still consider myself an anxious person, but I'm just really gentle with myself about my anxiety. For example, if I have to go shoot on location, I'm just really clear with who like production, like, hey, I have celiac. I'm probably not going to be able to eat most of the things, even if they say it's gluten-free, they don't have a dedicated kitchen. So let's make sure wherever I'm staying has a microwave, has a kitchen, has access to grocery. Like it, it is very anxiety-provoking, you know, especially like when I went to go shoot a movie in China mm-hmm. for three weeks. Like I probably drove production crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I felt really badly. But I mean, like, I was like, so no soy sauce. Yeah. You know, I had, they had to go get tamari. They had to like buy their own walks and bring it to places. I had to have a dedicated chef, mm-hmm. but, and I was of course worried, like, who the hell am I? Right. Like, who am I to be making these demands? I'm, I felt so diva-ish, but like, and that of course gives me anxiety of what are people going to think? But it, I mean, I just got over it. I just am really gentle with myself and I, and I allow myself to just be like, well, I, I don't see any other option. Yeah. Uh, like the whole, the whole, you know, the whole idea of just being cool girl, um, of the, of, of, of like, oh, it's fine. It's fine. I can eat whatever, whatever you want me to eat. It's going to be fine. Oh, and you want me to get in a bikini afterwards? No problem. No problem. <laughs> I'm not that. I'm not right. that person. I may play her mm-hmm. <laughs> over and over and over again, but I'm not that person. And the more upfront I can be with you, the more relaxed we can all be. Yeah. I'm unapologetic about who I am. And, and I'm proud of myself for that. It took me a lot to get to that place. Yeah. Yeah. You should be. That's really awesome. So now I kind of want to skip ahead to your directorial. Um, this was your directorial debut, right? I will make you mine. It was. Mm-hmm. Um, congratulations, by the way, it's a beautiful film. Everyone should check it out. And, um, so, you know, you just spoke about the importance of like advocating for yourself. And I'm curious how you brought that into your role as a director, because I think that I I've had s- numerous conversations with friends about 
mental health in the entertainment industry and how, I mean, it is a very difficult industry to be in period. And then when you add on the stress of being on set of the long hours of, you know, having to make days, which for anyone who doesn't work in the industry is basically like you have a certain schedule of things that you need to get done that day in order to stay on schedule for the whole shoot. And if you do not make your day, if you do not get those things done, then it has to obviously be added onto another day and all days cost money. So it's that, and that is why we work long hours. That is why it is such a intense, stressful situation. So I'm curious, you know, how you brought that advocacy into your role as a director in order to, you know, advocate for yourself, advocate for the story, advocate for the actors. Like that's, that's a big job there. You know, I actually found it very easy to do the high stress stuff. Like, I feel like that I, I, I tend to thrive in those situations and maybe it's because I'm, I've done mostly in independent films, yeah. very low budget things. And so I'm, I'm really used to being extremely scrappy uh, and very close to my crew and mm-hmm. really leaning on other people to help making th- make things happen. So that that actually came really simply and easily for me. And, and But that also was because my movie was the third in a trilogy. And so a lot of the people that we were working with, the cast and the crew were people we had no- worked with before. And so there was that familial feeling already. There was this sense of like, oh, it's Lynn's turn to cook in the kitchen where we've like, we, we've been, we've been, we've been summering here every year and like yeah. now it's like your turn. Yeah. So that's what it, that's what it felt like a little bit of just like, oh, now it's my turn to do this. That's great. What I found incredibly challenging and it actually took my breath away with how intense the, the emotions were, was post-production. I just could not believe how difficult it was. Like I've been through some really tough things like the, the death of my father, uh, mourning infertility for, for many years of, of, of an infertility struggle. And that all felt like nothing mm-hmm. compared to like what it felt like every single time I finished a major barrier with the film. Um, our film was actually divided up into two separate shoots because of um, just the timing of things. We had to do half of it in the summer and half of it in the fall. So I had a good chunk of time in between. And when I finished that first shoot and we began to do post, I did not know how I was going to rally the troops again to do another shoot. I mean, somehow we ended up doing it and, and I was fine, but I, I fought so hard against having to do reshoots mm-hmm. because I just didn't think I had it in me. Mm-hmm. I like just did not feel as though like I could get the group together and, and do it one more time. Right. Um, and a lot of that was because I think I mean, I've always felt this way with um, acting and I've gotten a lot better with it where when you let go of a character, it takes a while for them to leave your, just your spirit and, yeah. and you miss them and you mourn them. But when, when I, wrote, I had written this movie uh, and I starred in it and not only was I in her head, but I was in the heads of every character that I had written for a mm-hmm. year. And so 
the holding on to them in between shoots was so difficult. Like I was trying to just, you know, be a director and do all of the things I needed to do to edit, but I was finding it so difficult because I wanted to hang on to them. I was, I, I knew I was in trouble when I was like walking around my neighborhood and my neighbors would be having parties and I would be like, I'm just going to go in and like, and like crash this party and yeah. like come in as a different, like, who is like, who is this person who wants to go and do that? Like, like that's not normal at all whatsoever, but it was almost like I was like, because I don't turn to drugs or food or any other type of outlet, I needed some kind of like place to like put this energy and like yeah. disperse. And I found, I found it to be a lot easier the second time, but in the editing, I think it was just so difficult. I think, I think it's one of the loneliest feelings I've ever felt, even though I had my husband by my side helping mm. me edit it. Mm. It still felt like I felt the weight of everything on my shoulders mm. of, of this film and, and trying to make sure that it was going to be the best that, that I wanted it to be. Yeah. And I definitely had a few moments where I understood why there were so many indie films or shorts that I had been a part of that never saw the light of day. Yeah, there was there was a part of me that definitely felt like, well, that was such an expensive mistake. I'm I'm not going to ever make that mistake again. It just yeah. felt like a big, huge mistake, mm -hmm. and I just did not trust myself to um to fully breathe breathe it into the world. Yeah, like I just so much doubt. Yeah so much doubt especially every time we like did testing and yeah um and I heard like one person right <laughs> like, say something negative and I was just like well that's it that's right it. all of the, all, everything we've been doing like forget it because this person it doesn't make sense to this person right this person is like this one person <laughs> yeah and I knew that was irrational yeah but at the same time I could not fight against like the feeling of the responsibility of that I I just wasn't prepared for that. And I also wasn't prepared for, you know, when, when you release it out into the world and, and you just, it's like, it, they, a lot of people say, don't compare it to like having children. And I don't have anything to compare it to, but like, I would imagine like, at least when you're like bringing your, you birth your child, you get to be with it. Right. This felt like I like birthed the child and then it went off, it like walked right. and then it went to college. Yeah. <laughs> like, and, and everyone's I, now grading no it. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, I, and I'm sure a, a lot of that had to do with the releasing the movie during the pandemic, too, of not being able to at least, like, enjoy it with an audience. Yeah. But it was just, it was so difficult. Um, and, of course, I just want to do it again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah. Oh, I know. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, I had two films that released during the pandemic and I totally, it was, it was really hard and it was really, I don't know if you experienced this at all, but like, it was really hard for me to have the film come out. And then number one, I mean, I live by myself. And so I would like, I would like see it on whatever iTunes or whatever. And then I would like watch it with my dog and like drink wine. And then I was like, and that's it. And it's like, you pour years of your life into something and then that's it. And it's just like, and it's so, I mean, talk, talk about like wanting external validation as far as like, yes, I did a good job. This is something I should be proud of. It's so hard to 
like stand in your own truth and your own power of being like, I did a good job and I, and I finished it. And like, I'm going to walk away from the outcome. Like that it's just going to do what it's going to do. But I, and it's interesting because I know for myself that I've, because I've now gone through this, you know, twice in the pandemic, but also I think I'm just going to totally track this into my future is I now anticipate the feeling of depression that comes after I release something into the world like that. And the trick or the um, negative side of this is that I can sometimes, because I know that that depression is coming, I won't allow myself to celebrate the wins because the higher the high, the lower the low. And that's something that my therapist was very, you know, she was like, you know, it's really important. You have to feel like if, if you're proud of yourself on something, you have to feel it in its entirety. Like it's so important for you to celebrate yourself and like truly feel that, that happiness. And if that means that you have, that you have a a crash as far as feeling depressed about something, like that's okay. That's also just an emotion and you work through it and you write about it and you process it how you need to. But Cause I definitely was getting into a pattern of kind of just feeling numb about things because I didn't want to allow myself to feel happy because then I didn't want to feel sad. And I'm just curious, you know, how, yeah, how it coming out, how processing all of that was for you. I mean, what was interesting was, you know, with Saving Face, the movie I had mentioned earlier, the one where I played the ballet dancer, I feel like because it was my first feature film, I didn't know any better. I didn't know that most movies, if you feel like it's special, that it probably means it is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like that, like not all movies uh, are magical and special. Right. <laughs> and so, and I, and I really didn't allow myself to enjoy Sundance or Toronto or or any of the other amazing things that were happening because for me, I was like, oh, this is the beginning of my career. This is this is just gonna be normal. Right. It's normal. Like, <laughs> like 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 so so I'm just gonna stuff my face instead. Yeah. Um, Spoiler alert, it's not, it's not normal. (laughs) Yeah, and then fast forward, uh, have never been back to Toronto or Sundance. But that said, like, I I knew when we were making this how special it was, so much so that I would cry each day in front of my my crew, but like unapologetically, because I was just like, oh my God, this is so magical and so beautiful. And I want to remember this, like, Mm -hmm. because like, like, it almost felt like, like it was my first time and I yeah. got to like do it with everyone. And I like knew how special it was. I'm like, let's light the candles. Let's <laughs> really like, like absorb this, all of us. <laughs> of course, like, I don't think anyone else was absorbing it as much as I was, but I definitely felt like that, all of that. Mm-hmm. And when we got into South by Southwest, I was like fully prepared to give myself what I would, did not allow to give myself when saving faces at Sundance. Like I was like, this is good. That's that's why I I agreed to sell the movie before we went to South by. Yeah. Because I was like, I want to enjoy myself. My mom is coming, my brother's coming. I want them to be there when the credits roll and they see that the movie's dedicated to my dad who passed away in 2012. Like I want like all of it. I want to feel all of it. And the fact that I was denied it. Mm-hmm was like really another thing that I was just like, sure. whoa, whoa. I was not prepared to like not be able to party. Mm-hmm. And like, I was prepared to party and it's it's not happening. And 
there's something about that that just feels so I mean I know it's not just happening to me obviously Mm -hmm. but it it feels very on brand Mm -hmm. with with the Lin Chen um, (laughs) school of life which is like you just keep trying like Mm -hmm. just just keep trying and maybe never enjoy the party like Mm -hmm. maybe the party will never come Mm -hmm. but but I at least I got like that magical couple weeks on set yeah you know enough so that like to me it's really worth it and I completely agree with you there is something about like when you watch the finished product and you're like that's it mm-hmm. um I felt that over and over again with like every BuzzFeed viral video that I filmed you know where like we would like put it up it would get like four million hits in a day right. and like I just felt like all the adrenaline of ev- everything and then it would go away and people would be like do it again yeah um <laughs> and to me that whole thing as lovely as it feels like to have that 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 shot of adrenaline at the end of the day if I don't love like what I created like there were so many times when a video would go viral that I was like why mm-hmm. like literally just sitting around in my car right. I don't understand or that but then there would be something I worked my ass off on and it wouldn't get the same kind of attention so yeah that whole this whole year has been about taking, shifting my, my validation from external sources, which is hard because I have to admit that a huge part of making this movie mm-hmm. was because I desired to be validated and taken seriously mm. as a director. Yeah. And I, I don't feel like I got that and, and maybe I never will. Mm. You know, it was a driving force for me to create. For sure. And so now the challenge is how do I keep doing this? Cause I, I do like it. I yeah. love it. Mm-hmm. And, and how do I keep doing that without that expectation or that hope, like without that being the reason why I sit in front of my laptop and do things. Right. And that's really hard because I think we're taught a lot to like dream huge and picture ourselves in that place. And, and I do think that that is very useful but at the same time, for myself, I just think there's got to be something more to it. Yeah. And I'm still figuring that out. But, but I find that to be really, I don't know, that's what life is about. Like the, the trying to figure out what, what makes me tick is like, is really exciting and, and, and feels more like it's in my control. And yeah. knowing that that shifts constantly is is reassuring to me, even though it feels so like unpredictable and unreliable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, talking about, you know, taking control of your life, you mentioned this before, you know, you struggled. How how long did you struggle with infertility when you were, you know, trying to have a, have a child and then figuring out that you couldn't. And what was that, you know, journey like, cause I'm sure, you know, that as well, like we have these ideas about what our life is going to be like, what our career is going to be like. And then, and then life happens and then we have to let go of those things that we want and just like try and embrace what we have. And uh, I'm just curious how that experience was for you. Yeah, I, um, I always thought I was going to be a mom and I always thought I was going to be mom of two or more. Mm-hmm. And I honestly always pictured myself um, acting and then having kids and then not acting anymore because I would just put my life into my, like, like it was almost like it was an excuse for my career never to 
blow up. Yeah. Because, mm-hmm. um, cause like, because I got kids to worry about. Right. Of I've course. Got to feed. Right. And so it was that much more like, oh my God, what am I going to do now? Right. Um, that I don't have mouths to feed. Right. Okay, now that I don't have an excuse. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But the, I had always wanted to have kids. I always thought I was going to have kids since I was little. And when it wasn't happening, uh, it, you know, it took about two or three years of uh, infertility treatments mm-hmm. until like, and, and I sag after insurance at the time, um, I wasn't qualifying for it. Yep. And my husband's health insurance uh, did not cover infertility treatment. So it was really a thing of like, oh, you're, if you do IVF, it's your life savings. Right. And it's not even, it's not even 50%. Right. Like right. you're not even like, like that to me just felt like a gamble. I just was not willing to take. Yeah. And so I, I said to my husband, like, let's just take a year off. Cause, cause the pressure of my age mm-hmm. was what was like driving a lot of this fear of like, right. Oh, I'm going to turn 35 infertility rates double. Like, what am I going to do? What yeah. are we going to do? And instead of like trying to plan for this future that was not happening, um, I was just like, let's just plan for what's actually, let's just live our lives as it's happening. I, I just need a year off. Yeah. And that year was the best. Like I, I took all these like super low budget movies. Actually, one of them was the movie that ended up leading to, I will make you mine. You know, mm. like I, I said cool. yes to it because it was filming on location and it was paying nothing. Yeah. And I still said yes. And I, and I went and I traveled a bunch to a bunch of film festivals that year. And when we came back and reanalyzed, you know, we basically were like, hey, we could always adopt. We can always foster. But what ended up happening was each year that we reassessed, we would be like, I don't want the responsibility. Mm-hmm. And because we don't have the luxury of having children, mm-hmm. we are going to have the luxury of having a life without children. So yeah. we purposefully were like, okay, then we will take these trips and we will not worry about pissing off our families if we don't go home for Thanksgiving or Christmas. Right. Because we don't have children for them to guilt us into wanting to see during yeah. that time. And, you know, it was also extremely difficult being around my brother who has five children mm-hmm. and, and my sister-in-law who has two children. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, it was always just like a reminder. Like there was, a, there would be this like regression on everyone's part, but like, it was like, they were the real adults now. And we right. were still like the kids, even right. though we were older. Mm-hmm. And it, it just did a, it just did a real number. On yeah, I'm me. sure. So I, I really like, it wasn't until I passed the age of 40 and I guess it was just in my head, even though I know people have children after 40 and can, I can very well still adopt. But for me, it was just sort of like, okay, I can like relax about this now. Right. Like there's no, like me accidentally getting pregnant. Like it's not right. going to happen. Right. So I could just like relax a bit. And at this point, like I'd been to enough baby showers. I'd been around my friend's kids enough to like, feel like, I'm not missing out on anything. Yeah. It's fine. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm really like, I'm having a great time right now. Cause my, my, my friends, Sam and John had a baby last year, mm-hmm. the beginning of pandemic. And they asked us to be her grandparents, her, grandpa- her godparents, <laughs> not her grandparents, her <laughs> godparents. 
and we've just been like super leaning into it yeah in a way so that nice. I I didn't get to do that with you know my nieces and nephews because it was still too painful mm-hmm. we just took her to the zoo recently and it's just been really great and I always think about my infertility as like the lesson of something you want so much because I wanted a kid so badly and there was like no reason that I could think of why the universe was not providing me with a child like I would have been a great mom it would have been a great dad we would have provided like the greatest life like Mm -hmm. why is it that like there's children in dumpsters and by people who don't want kids and they're getting pregnant like why 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 right it was very similar to like this feeling of like my career of just if I, I if I'm such a good actress and I'm working my ass off and like people tell me I'm doing everything I can why isn't it happening mm-hmm. and um and stop and the second I just stopped feeling sorry for myself and and just realizing that like what I want can change mm-hmm. it just relaxed me it, it just like relaxed me about everything made me like realize there's no part that's going to change my life yeah there's, there's nothing that's going to seriously alter the mm-hmm. universe in any way. Right. The course um, of your life. Yeah, exactly. I'm fine. Yeah. I'm fine. And, and what I want can change and I can adapt. I can mm-hmm. adapt to anything. Yeah. It'll be fine. And yeah. so that, it really did teach me that. And I'm, I'm grateful for it, but it was, it, it's been hard. Mm-hmm. It's hard I'm to, sure. it's hard to, to exist as an adult as a married adult, especially. Yeah. And not have the same experience as most other people and have wanted it. Most people I know who, who are married and childless were childless by choice. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, same. It's interesting because mine, uh, I have a few friends who, who have kids, but most of my friends are, are, are with partners and they're and they and they want kids but they're just not ready yet and it's interesting because I think we're kind of in this I mean not new but like so so many of the people that I hang out with are they're just like we're just not ready yet and you know and I think that there is you know thankfully more of a acceptance of fostering and adopting where it's like you know and I know that that's the case for me like I desperately want kids. I have no way of doing that right now, unless I was going to do it by myself, which I have also thought about. But I also have kind of come to the, come to terms with the fact that if I end up adopting or, you know, whatever, that that's okay. And it's, you know, it may not be exactly the way that I wanted to like build a family and a life, but that's, this is what happens. (laughs) This is, this is life. But I think that it, it is just so, important to like continue evolving and to just like focus on stability and our own happiness and, you know, finding whatever we need our tools in order to get us to that, to that space. I think that's so important. Just a few more questions. Something that I really like to ask people is, you know, I created more than you see because I, I do think that we have so many masks that we wear And it's so, 
valuable for people to take off those masks sometimes and be vulnerable. And so I'm curious, like if there is a specific situation or like a group of people or something, and it could be present or it could be in your past that you feel like you've worn a specific mask and what the feeling was, you know, either when you step away from that or when you put it on just that, that idea of wearing a mask and what that brings up for you. I mean, the first thing I'm thinking about is high school, you know, of um, the mask that I wore for, for many years, which was like, I'm going to basically soften and hide any part of me that you might find to be grating or annoying. Mm-hmm. This is not just high school. This is college also yeah. of, um, I, 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 to, to not risk you talking poorly about me. Cause that happened, you know, like, and was that I like definitely ethnic ethnicity focused? Do you think that, or, Oh, I mean, not really. Although there was definitely like some racist microaggressions mm-hmm. going on, but for the most part, it was more just like, Oh God, you're a lot. Mm. like 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 you're all fascinating lots with with your with your with your everything like you're you're crying in public and you're uh, like all of it it's a lot and I felt that and Mm. it definitely felt like what was interesting was it wasn't until like and I definitely use drugs as a way for me to like have an excuse to be that big still Mm. Because it was like, oh, it's not her. It's because she's high. Right. That she's like being this annoying. Right. Um, but it allowed me to like get it out, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes people would like love it. And sometimes people would just be like too much. Right. Getting away from her. But what was so interesting to me was when I met my husband my junior year of college. So really young mm-hmm. and really in that formative time, like I wasn't even 21 yet. And he couldn't be more different. He's mm-hmm. also the son of two therapists. Yeah. <laughs> and he is like, he is like, and I had been going to therapy for years at this yeah. point already. And he is like a really quiet, doesn't need to share, like <laughs> kind of guy. Yeah. Um, and on on paper, he should be the type of person who would be like running the other way. Right. When I'm there. Um, but instead not only did he accept me, I wouldn't say he celebrated me. Like, like, like initially he wasn't like, great. Yeah. Like, give me everything. <laughs> this is what I want. <laughs> like, like, yeah, exactly. But I think what it was, was he was more like, he really heard what I had to say mm-hmm. and was just like, I'm not going anywhere, Yeah, you know, but I'm also not going to chase after you. Like when you go like slam the door in my face and run away, that's not a nice way to treat me. I'm not going to go like running after you. And so I really, I really learned that I was enough Mm -hmm. with him that I didn't need to like be so loud Mm -hmm. or I didn't need to share so much. I I tend to be an oversharer. I think Mm -hmm. that's probably something that I I've constantly struggled with my entire life and that's like part of the mask that I feel like I put on that you were referring to is like I really want to share everything and be super vulnerable with you and have you be vulnerable with me and like just have the feelings and then we'll just like have a like a hangover together yeah but that's unhealthy you know right. like yeah. it's like to constantly do that and I and I think this is probably the reason why I've had so many best friends who like 
are very quickly not my best friends after the first year of us like constantly right. being together. But but with Abe, my husband, he has been that person for me. Mm-hmm. And and what's just really interesting is we never have the hangover mm-hmm. because we're, he just he just like he doesn't absorb yeah my <laughs> my 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 everything. He's just like there to be like a like a mirror almost yeah for me and and he's not going anywhere Mm -hmm. so like that's why I feel like it's it's been really healthy for me to be in this relationship for the past 24 years with him yeah um we just celebrated our 18th anniversary together and you know our relationship our relationship constantly evolves yeah um, but I can depend on it and and I just love that Mm -hmm. that's so wonderful So final question, what do you think has been the thing that you've learned about yourself most this year? This year, I just feel like, you know, it's interesting. I was just talking about college because in college, I feel like every semester I changed so much Mm -hmm. with each, with each, you know, passing season, I would like change my hair, change the music I listened to, change my look, change my friends, change what I was studying. And it was always just like happening so quickly and it was so drastic. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that kind of happened this year Mm. a little bit of like, I was like, first I was in the phase of putting out the movie and like hustling and doing everything I could with, I will make you mine to like a very quiet moment of just like completely like doing a lot of like artists, the artist way and mm-hmm. journaling like crazy and and like coming into myself and then becoming like a super political activist doing everything I could with the election uh doing so much uh with just like every weekend was filled with some sort of way that I could help others yeah to like now which is this strange period of of trying to figure out how we're gonna come out of the other side of this and just right. being really like of course, I'm anxious about it. I think like a lot of people are. But at the same time, I'm just really like, um, I'm not in a rush. Mm-hmm. Like I'm just really um, taking my time with it. The yeah. same way like you would step into a pool <laughs> slowly yeah. and get acclimated. Like some people are like, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> and I think my 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 instinct is never to do that. It's to like, like jump right in and I, I think I've changed a lot in the, in the sense that I don't want to jump right in anymore. Yeah. Um, at least right, not right now. It doesn't, it doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. And and part of that is because the pool is different. Like right. everyone, everyone has gone through this and, and everyone has like a different way of dealing with this. So it's not like the pool is just stagnant and I just like, am doing my thing. Right. Um, I'm really conscious. I think of how I am affecting others and how, like what I'm doing can uh, can change the way others are experiencing things and how can I do this without ma- I'm using this water metaphor to death, but like I, I love it not making too many waves or like yeah. you know the ripple effect is is real so like just just being conscious of that and like mm-hmm. really taking my time with this and, and not being in a rush mm-hmm. it feels very different but at the same time like I actually think this is what I I think this is what I've been wanting in my heart yeah. Is to not like, you know, hustle my way, pushing people aside to like right. make myself heard or, or notice. Yeah. Um, of just like being like, I can be here and 
it's totally fine. Mm-hmm. If nobody notices. Yeah. I'm going to be okay. Yeah. Well, it's about celebrating different sides of yourself instead of like changing different sides of yourself all the time and then waiting for whichever one is going to be celebrated. You're kind of just like focusing on all of the different aspects of Lynn and being like, I'm, I'm here who, you know, who can I interact with in a like positive and controlled and, you know, whatever way works for me and works for them, but it isn't. Um, yeah. I just think that that's so, that's so wonderful that you've gotten to this place. And I know, I mean, we've obviously touched on so many things, so many different ups and downs that you've had over your insane career um, in a good way. And uh, I just, I'm so excited to see where your career continues to go because I think that, I mean, of course I, I am biased here, but I think that people who've worked in indie film have so much resilience and understanding of the work and of themselves and of community. And I think that we are such assets to the industry in um, such a beautiful way. And uh, yeah, I'm just really excited for the industry to continue to celebrate you both as a writer and an actor and a director and producer and editor and all of the things, whatever you decide to pick up, I'm just really excited for you. So thank you, Deb. Thank you for creating this. I love the show and what you're doing really, it's important, but I also know, you know, personally how hard it is to constantly, you know, be talking about these kinds of subjects. It's, it's, it's a lot. And so I thank you for doing it because it is, it's a service that you're giving all of us. And I just want you to know that I appreciate that. Well, thank you so much. I look forward to chatting with you again soon. Yes, for sure. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. I think that Lynn really ties together so many important elements of mental health, how our families and our histories can impact how we feel about ourselves, about our bodies, about others how the things that we put in our body can impact us so many interesting um, and important ways. If you didn't listen to the episode last week with Liana, we actually talked about the importance of and the connection between gut health and mental health. So I strongly encourage you to go and check that one out as well. Lynn is really an incredible person and I'm so excited to see all of the amazing work that she is going to bring to this world. I think that she has a very unique and important storytelling voice. And I am honored that she came on here to share her personal story and connect with you all on this platform. As always, thank you so much for participating in this More Than You See community. I really hope that you let me know what you think. I hope that you are kind to yourself and to others this week. Please remember that you and everyone around you is more than you see. I look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you so much for listening.